morning, everyone. God bless Tim Michaela. We're so glad to have you with us today and the work that you're doing for the Lord and those people there. You're always on our minds. Just know that we're very mission oriented. Uh, I'm Jean Farrington, and I'll be reading the scriptures for today. I'm connected here through the women's ministry and uh, an upcoming mentorship program. I hope that uh, each of you will uh, have an opportunity to hear more about that and, and uh, join uh, with the other women in that possibility uh, come launch in, in January. Let's read from Revelations 21, and we're going to read verses 1 through 9 this morning. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people." And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Thanks, Jean. What are you waiting for? So we're getting to the end of the year, and it's this time where we start to, to peek a little bit into the next, as we start to build anticipation and excitement for things that we have scheduled and planned in this upcoming year. Maybe it's, it's a new addition to your family, or a graduation, or a job change. Maybe it's a purchase that you're looking forward to making, or a vacation that you have scheduled. It's that last one for me that I tend to build a lot of excitement and anticipation, a vacation, a trip that I have planned. Some of it is because I don't always do the best at finding rest during the week. I start to build up anticipation as to this trip is going to accomplish everything that I need it to accomplish. I'm going to simultaneously get all of my tiredness removed and yet also be incredibly productive. I brought 10 books with me and I'm going to read every single one of them. I'm going to get a lot of really good time with Emily, but I'm also going to see every single person that I haven't seen for a while. I'm going to lose weight while endlessly eating. And so needless to say, I tend to come back from vacations disappointed, really let down. I built it up. I had this great plan, this anticipation that I was waiting for this to happen. And it really just let me down. But what about the opposite side of that? 
when we build something up in our minds, when our anticipation is off the charts, when we are so excited and expecting for things to go a certain way, and yet they surpass our wildest dreams. They're better than we could have possibly anticipated. We're, we're getting to the point in our series of the book of Revelation that it's been building. It's been building this anticipation, this excitement of what will it look like when God makes all things new? What will it be like when we are with our God? What will it be like when everything that's broken in this world is restored? And the picture that we see is something that surpasses anything that we could have dreamed of. It surpasses anything. It goes beyond our wildest expectations. We see that this thing that we're waiting for, God restoring the world, is better than we could have ever anticipated. It starts with this uh, picture that comes from verse two. It says, and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. We have this arrival of this new city and a couple different ways that we could say this. We, we've seen throughout Revelation that the people of God that are described as, as a bride prepared for Jesus. It's, it's a picture of this relationship that we have with him. Or we could take this as, as a literal city, but both get to the same point. The focus of this chapter is showing what God has done to restore every broken thing, how he's made all of creation new, and he's made a way for his people to be with him. We're going to see that throughout this chapter as we focus on what is new, what is better, and what's missing. Our time in Revelation 21 is going to be centered on those ideas. What's new, what's better, and what's missing. So we'll start with what's new. And this comes from the the first eight verses, verses one through eight, and especially verse five. I wasn't really uh, trying really hard to come up with these titles as as it says right there, behold, I am making all things new. And so we see all throughout this section, these things that are made new. The first thing that we see is, is what's right there in verse one, a new heaven and a new earth. The idea is that all of this world has been made new. Everything has been restored. As we think about when God, when he created the world, he declared all things as good. And yet we look around at this world and it's really easy to find things that we would say are not good. I mean, tsunamis and hurricanes and fires and famine and drought, Christmas trees that aren't bushy enough, having to wait until after Mother's Day to plant things. And what we see in the new heavens and the new earth, all of those are eradicated that this world that we live in, that, that feels the effects of sin, that everything that we see that's, that's so broken, God restores all of that, makes it new, makes it so much better than we could have anticipated, makes it incredible. All of the effects of sin have been removed over creation. We also see a new dwelling place. And this comes from uh, Revelation 21, verse 3. It says, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man and he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. It says, the dwelling place of God will be with man. God will be their God and they will be his people. 
And, and this, this promise, this, this incredible truth of God dwelling with his people, of nothing being in the way between them and him, of, of knowing and being known by this God, it's, it's the often repeated promise throughout the Bible. It's this declaration that this incredible thing will be happening. It says it all throughout the Bible. Don't believe me? I mean, wow, I, I thought we were starting to trust each other, but fine, I could show my work. So we have a slide right here that shows the places where this is mentioned. You see it in Genesis, you see it in Exodus, it's in Leviticus as well. It's, it's in a lot of places in Jeremiah, it's in a lot of places in Ezekiel, it's in Zechariah as well. You jump to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 6 mentions it, Hebrews 1 and Hebrews 8 does. And, and to be clear, these are only the clear references of God dwelling with his people, of being their God and them being his people. Uh, the allusions, I, I left off that because we'd need a couple more slides to say it. All throughout the Bible, it is talking of this truth. It's like those moments that are in movies or shows or I guess even commercials where someone says a line, then someone else says that same line, then someone else says that same line, and then eventually it gets telescoped. They're layered on top of each other, and the volume starts to raise, not because anyone is, is messing with levels, just as you're adding more voices, it makes it louder and louder and louder. That's what the Bible is doing. The story of the Bible is the dwelling place of God will be with man. The dwelling place of God will be with man. The dwelling place of God will be with man, and it's repeated over and over to where it's almost like a shout, but it's silenced by the truth of this passage that says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. God with his people, nothing in the way, nothing hindering that perfect relationship with the God of the universe, this God who's so different and removed from us, yet intimately close. On this, D.A. Carson uh, says, uh, in times past, the text, the Bible says again and again, no one can look at God and live. But now, all who are there are so transformed that they do nothing but remain in his presence all the time. The angels around the throne cover their faces with their wings as they cry, holy, holy, holy. But now, God takes up his abode with human beings and all the unshielded splendor and radiance of his being. Nothing masks that. This new dwelling place, God with his people, as their God, them as his people, the promise of the Bible fulfilled here as the God of the universe is made intimately close. We see as well a new peace. The passage mentions how there's no crying or a mourning or pain or anything that reminds us of sin and death, all of that has been removed. Isn't it fascinating that as we're talking about how beautiful this is, this incredible picture of God restoring all things, that the best language that we have to come up with describing it is by saying what's not there. There's no crying, there's no mourning, there's nothing that reminds us of sin and death. It's, it's so hard for us to wrap our minds around what does creation look like with that? What does the world look like without these things that we don't have anything positive? We can only say what's missing. But, but think about it this way. The greatest comfort that we can offer people who are going through hardship or difficulty, the best thing that we can do for them is to be with them in their difficulty. And that's incredibly helpful. But look at this peace that Jesus brings this new peace that goes beyond anything that we can imagine. Yes, God, he is with his people, but it's the eradication of sorrows. That won't even be part of the language anymore. It is just the state of peace. Finally, we have this new water. 
pointing to this satisfaction that comes from God alone. It it reminds me of uh, another book that John wrote uh, coming from John chapter four. These are the words of Jesus. He said, Jesus said to her, anyone who drinks of this water, so regular water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The idea being that in this new heaven and new earth with God dwelling with his people in this peace that's to be found, it's this level of satisfaction of having no needs whatsoever fully fulfilled in this Jesus. As we look at what is new about this this section, what is so beautiful, why this picture is so lovely to us, it's not recreating anything. It's not looking back at at the Garden of Eden or any other time or or trying to recreate glory days. It is creating something entirely new, something greater than anyone has ever seen, something better than anything that we can anticipate. It's on that note that we get to the second section. Verses nine through 21 show us what's better. What's better about this section or about this picture of the new heavens and new earth? Now, there's a lot of details in verses nine through 21 and we do not possibly have the time to go through all of them. Uh, So we'll just go off of the assumption that we've always been doing in the book of Revelation that when there's a, a symbol or a detail or something that we don't understand, It's going back to the Old Testament. It's fulfilling a promise that was made there or an image that's given to us from the Old Testament. But one of the things that we'll focus on is the number 12 is repeated all throughout this this section. 12 comes up over and over again. It's this number of completion, especially as it relates to the people of God, the complete number of God's people here. So we see 12 show up uh, at the gates, and then there's 12 angels at the gates, and then the 12 tribes of Israel are written on the gates, and the 12 uh, apostles are the foundations. We're told of this wall that's there, and even that is a 12. You go 12 times 12, that's 144, and the wall is 144 cubits tall. And, And so the meaning behind all all of these numbers of 12 is it's pointing to the fact that all of God's people are with him in the city in complete, utter security and safety. That there's no enemies, no unwelcome guests come in. It's just God's people fully and completely there. Even the, the size of the city is given to us as a number 12. It is 12,000 stadia on its length and width and height. And what's fascinating, it's 12,000 stadia. That's a really big size. Uh, even we, we don't fully understand it, but, but it does point to the, it's about the same size as, as the Hellenistic world at the time, the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was considered to be the whole known world at the time. And so it's pointing to this idea that this city is overtaking the whole known world. Even the symbol, 12, this complete, this number of wholeness points to that idea. And so it's telling us that God's dwelling place, this special place of his presence, is over the entire world. And that matters all the more when we think again about the size of this place. 12,000 stadia on its length and width and height. So it's telling us it's cube-shaped. Cube now there's one other cube in the Bible. 
Back in the Old Testament, when, when God rescued his people out, out of uh, Egypt, out of the slavery that they were in, he was, he was showing that he was with them. It's this foretaste of the dwelling place of God being with his, with his people. And so they sent up this tent, this tabernacle, which was God's place, uh, God's special place of presence. But as we've talked about, this world is so full of sin that, that God is so holy that we can't approach him on, a, on our own. So one person would enter into this special place. But to do that, they had to purify themselves, consecrate themselves, and then they would go to represent all of humanity as one person entering this place. And uh, the, the, the one person could only ever into, enter the special place of God's dwelling, which was called the Holy of Holies which had the same size, length, and width, and height, a cube. And so what we see is the city, as it's being described, is, is calling us to, uh, to remember the Holy of Holies, God's special dwelling place that only one person could enter because God's presence is so holy, and yet that takes over the entire known world. There's no special dwelling place of God because it's everywhere all of God's people in this place, all of it being God's special place of presence. You get to all of the materials that are being used and, and it's difficult to understand what they, what they point to. You take uh, these 12 jewels are mentioned uh, as being part of this, this city. And one reason why that's hard is we don't fully know what all these jewels are. But the second reason is we don't fully know why John means these jewels. We have some guesses. One is uh, that the, the Holy, or the, the high priest who would enter into the Holy of Holies, he would wear 12 jewels uh, on, his, on his chest plate to symbolize the 12 tribes of Israel. So as he went into the Holy of Holies, as he's representing all the people, he has a, a visible sign of who he, it is that he's representing. But even as the design of the tabernacle, this tent was made, it itself is a symbol. The reason for wearing jewels is a symbol. It's all supposed to recall God's creation when he made this world perfect. As you look at Genesis chapter two, as it's described in the Garden of Eden, you read of precious jewels being found there. And so we could talk more about streets of gold and pearly gates and all of these other descriptions that are given to us, but I, I think the focus of what all of these details are, why they're given to us, is it's supposed to make us think of two things, the temple and the garden, the Garden of Eden. So God's special dwelling place and his perfect creation as he made it. And yet what we see here is that it's not just recreating those things. There's no need for a temple. God's presence is everywhere. There's no need to have a garden of Eden because Eden has exploded over all of creation. There's no need to go back to some glory day because something has been made that's better than anything else that's been seen before. We see God joining with his people, not making things the way that they were, but making things eternally better. And then finally, we have what's missing. What's missing? This is Revelation 21, starting in verse 22. It says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And the lamp is the Lamb. By its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. And they will, bring into, uh, it, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. 
but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false. Only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So we see quite a few things that are missing from the city. First and foremost, it's, there's no temple. There's no need to have a special place of God's dwelling because it is over all the, the world. God's the dwelling place is with man, that he is their God and there is people everywhere. There's no sun and moon there. It's kind of like if you try to use a flashlight on a really sunny day, it's overpowered by the sunshine. All lights and luminaries are overpowered by the glory of God. There's no gates that are shut. There's no nighttime. Pointing to there's, there's never a, a threat of conquest or an invading army. There's never a threat of theft or, or nighttime was this time of crime being committed. There, there's never any of that in the city whatsoever. It's completely safe and secure. There's nothing unclean, detestable, or false. There's nothing that will ever go against the will of God ever again. But you notice, so once again, as we're trying to describe, why is this so beautiful? Why is this so, so much greater than anything that we can anticipate? All of our language is on what it's not. There's no temple, there's no sun or moon, there's no shut gates or night, there's, there's nothing detestable, unclean or false. All of it is describing things that are not. It's, it's hard for us to wrap our minds around, what does this look like? How is this so, so much better? How is this new that all we can say is it doesn't contain the things that we dislike or that we see as broken or that's not good in this world? And yet there is something given to us because in all those things that are missing, we're told what has taken their place instead. There's no temple because there's Jesus. There's no sun or moon because there's Jesus. There's no shut gates, there's no night, there's no threats, because there's Jesus. There's nothing unclean or detestable or false, nothing that goes against God, because there's Jesus. The focal point of all this, as we are talking about what's missing, what's gone, what's removed, it is replaced even more so with Jesus as this passage continues to mention Jesus, the lamb. The, the word lamb shows up something like 37 times in the New Testament. Seven of them are right here. It says, the, uh, verse 14, the 12 apostles of the lamb. Verse 22, the lamb is its temple. Verse 23, the lamb is its lamp. 27, uh, the lamb's book of life. Chapter 22, verse one, uh, the throne of God and the lamb. Verse three, the throne of God and the lamb will be in the city. Over and over again is talking about the lamb, this Jesus, this one who has made all things new, who has made all things better, who has removed all that was broken and insufficient and replaced it fully with himself. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who has removed every trace of sin, every bit of sorrow, every longing, and uh, removed every bit of that in this new world, the new heavens and the new earth. We've been talking throughout the book of Revelation how it, while it's focused on showing us what God is, uh, has done, is doing, and what he will do, that it's not just something for us to know of what's about to occur or will occur someday. 
It's the reminder of how we live now in light of that truth. And, and even in this chapter that's so focused on the future, it is, is as well showing us how we are to live now. We can see what the impact of this chapter is now. And so first and foremost, as we look at this picture of what God will do, it's the reminder that we are called to focus on what is lasting. That everything, what we see in this world that looks attractive, it's, it's a mere shadow of the beauty and the satisfaction that is to come. Our hope for what is to come, the, the, uh, that ought to be evident in what it is that we are doing with our lives. That as this is our hope, as this is what it is that we're expecting, as we are anticipating this incredible picture that God has given to us, that ought to show up in our lives now as we focus not on the things around us that will crumble and fail and fall, but instead to focus on what it is that is lasting. Dakota taught a class uh, last year that's called spiritual parenting. And one of the activities that's done right at the beginning is, is uh, uh, you're given a bunch of post-its and to write down uh, what are the things that you do during your week. And so you write down the tasks that you have and responsibilities and things that you do for other people, work, and, and so everything that you, you fill your week with. And, and then the prompt is given to take those post-its and put them into two groups. Things that are temporal or for this world only and things that are eternally focused. Vast majority of, of everyone's are gonna be on the things that are temporal. Now, the point of that is not to make us feel shame or, or anything like that, nor is it to say, stop doing all these things because God has placed us where we are for a reason, that uh, he's given us responsibilities and we wanna be good stewards of the things that God has given us. But it's the reminder of, as we say, that there is something greater that we are waiting for, that our hope is tied to something that is to come, that our reality is, is shaped by the work of this Jesus that ought to show up in what we do with our lives now. And so we pray, we, we turn to this God, we, we enter into a communication with him, understanding that his dwelling place will be with his people one day and we are eager for that. We understand that he is the God who's working, so we turn all things over to him. We read his Bible because that's how God has revealed himself to us. We want to learn and be shaped by him. We gather around other Christians because, well, that's what we will be doing in, in eternity to come, but it's also how we remain faithful now by spurring each other on. That we tell the world about Jesus because he is our only true and lasting hope. That we focus on him in this, this world that's full of other things that try to vie for our attention, and yet we realize they are but a shadow of the beauty that is to come. So we focus on what's lasting. Second thing is we live lives of endurance. That we see in this chapter, this, this warning that those who do not endure, that do not persevere, they, do, they don't enter into the city. And well, that's not fun to read. It's, it's a helpful warning that's given to us because it acknowledges how hard it is to be faithful how hard it is to live faithfully as a Christian in this life, how hard it is to endure. And yet as we're given this picture, as we see the reality of what is to come, that helps us to live and to endure through all of it now because we see something greater. Third thing is that we love other Christians. That this chapter shows us the church as Jesus sees it. This bond, as people are brought together, this bond that's greater than anything else that might bring people together. Stronger than family and friends. 
and nationality and a love for the grateful dead. This bond that Jesus gives us is stronger than anything else that there might be. And so we live out of that reality now that while Jesus is called to the church his bride, that he loves them, that we are all saved solely by the work of this Jesus, that brings us together because we need each other, but also because we recognize what it is that's brought us here. But that's hard as well. It's so easy to, to have other things be prioritized over being part of a church. There, there's other things to do on Sunday. There's a, other things that seem more immediate or more worthwhile. Or we don't like a part of a church service. And so we'll go to another one until we find something that we like, all the while missing out on knowing and being known by other Christians. That there's, that there's people in a church that we don't really like to be around. So that makes it difficult to want to, to love each other in the way Jesus has called us to. It makes me think of a, a quote from uh, The Screwtape Letters, which is this book by, by C.S. Lewis, and it's this fictionalized conversation between a, a senior demon and an apprentice demon to, to try to lead someone away. It's, it's tips to, to try to lead them away from God, and, and uh, Screwtape writes to his apprentice, and he says, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. One of the great tools that we have to lead people away from God is the church. No, do not misunderstand me, Screwtape says. I do not mean the churches we see are spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle that makes our boldest tempters uneasy. So Screwtape says our great ally is the church, not, not the way that we see it, not the true way that we see it, which is this beautiful picture, this tremendous picture of God's people together that is unstoppable. But instead... If you can get this person to focus on little annoyances, the squeaky shoes that someone has, someone who sings out of key, obviously wouldn't work here, you all sound beautiful, but, but to look at the people that, that they don't really wanna be around. If you can get them to focus on these, these things that might be called imperfections, you can get them to miss the beauty that is the church. And Revelation 21 is the picture of the church as Jesus sees it, as a bride prepared. And so we live out of that reality. We, we come along together, not because we found a perfect group, but we found a group that, is made, that has been made perfected by Jesus. And so finally, the fourth thing, fourth thing that we have is we praise the Lamb. We praise this Jesus, this one who's made it all right. All of this is based off of the work of Jesus. Things are new and better and have been replaced by Jesus and for Jesus. That he is our confidence to live in this life. He is why we can have hope in this life and the life to come. He is as well the reason why we can trust this future. As we hear about this, as it sounds better than what we could have ever expected, better than what we can anticipate, it might be hard for us to understand or to trust in that at all times. But it's because of Jesus that we can trust in this future. Because Jesus has come once, we can trust that he will come again. Because Jesus has fulfilled the longing and expectation once, we can trust that he will fill, fulfill our longing and expectation. In other words, because of Christmas, we can trust in the new heavens and the new earth. Because Jesus has kept his word, we can trust him when he says this in Revelation 21, verse five. 
And he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for this picture that you've given of, uh, to us of what is new and what is better and what is missing in this new heavens and new earth that you have promised to bring. That the longing of our hearts is fulfilled in this time, this desire to be with you, this desire to have sorrow and pain and hurts removed, this desire to, to not live lives that are marked by mourning or crying or pain, but instead be full completely with you. That while it's difficult now to see you at work, it's, it's hard to understand that you are present when we don't always feel that. We are given this incredible promise, the longing of all creation, the often repeated promise of the Bible, the dwelling place of God is with man, that we are brought, all of us, in complete, lasting, intimate closeness with you, that all things are made new, that we do not endure, we do not fight, we do not work for you now in vain, but because of the sure and certain future that you are bringing. Let us see every day more clearly the reality that is to come, the reality that shapes our lives now, that you are making all things new. So it's to you and you alone we pray.